It's time for episode 113 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, November 18th, 2015. Clockwise, four people, four technology topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, a podcast that can't be larger than 30 minutes, no matter how big the iPad gets. I am your host, Jason Snell, across the internet from me, your other host, Mr. Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. How are you doing this fine afternoon, it's, morning, it's afternoon? Mo- it's, it's morning, morning here. How, curvature it's of morning the earth, how somewhere. does it work? Yeah, exactly right. Cl- clocks are complicated. That's why Clockwise takes 113 episodes. We always talk to two wonderful guests every week on Clockwise. To my left, going around the circle, it is my old colleague in the Mac user days and the author of iOS Access for All, which you can get at iosaccessbook.com. It's Shelley Brisbane. Shelley, welcome back. Good morning from the center of the pendulum. It's good. Yes, you're you're in between me and Dan. That's nice. Indeed. To my left from iPhoneJD.com, it's Jeff Richardson. Hi, Jeff. Welcome back. Uh, hello, everybody. Good to talk to you all from New Orleans. Oh, we've, we're really covering the continent today. I feel you are. I feel like we're uh, we're very we're, we're spread very out. geographically dispersed. It's nice. Uh, and uh, we would like to uh, talk about four things with everybody for the next half hour, if that's okay. I will go first. Topic number one: uh, the iPad Pro came out last week, and it has prompted uh, a lot of discussion about the iPad as a productivity device. This is this ongoing conversation that's been brought to the fore by the fact that now there's this pro model of the iPad. I feel like the iPad can be a productivity device, and and uh, as I wrote yesterday on Six Colors, it's more like your style that you prefer and what you've got history doing. Like, you know, if you've built up all of this knowledge of the Mac, yeah, of course it's going to be really hard to use an iPad because your stuff isn't there and you're, you're used to something different, but I think you can be productive on it if you want to be and if you want to put in the work and the time. Uh, so I'm curious about, for, for all of you, if anything, what do you do productively on an iPad? Shelley? I do a lot of proofing. So I write books and other long form things, and I tend to put the proofs on my iPad and I read them, and then I usually make corrections on the laptop that's sitting right next to me. So for me, an iPad is really a second screen. I also read a lot on it, and I consider that productive because it's usually Instapaper reading or something that I'm doing for the purposes of work. I I don't find that I use it exclusively as a writing or podcasting tool, but it's always next to me. Like I say, the second screen is the best model I would would say my iPad uh, does for me. Yeah, I hmm, there's nothing that, that I use it specifically for productivity. I have done like the work from only my iPad thing in the past uh, and found it fine. I, I think it would be even better now with iOS 9. And now I I have an iPad Air again instead of an iPad mini, which I think would help as well. Um, and it's, you know, it, it went from being um, something where it's like in a pinch, I can get stuff done to, yeah, I can do most stuff on it. Like, it's still not as efficient because I have, as I know you wrote in your piece on Six Colors just yesterday, I believe, Jason, the the muscle memory sort of of like all my shortcuts and my little tricks and my scripts and all that kind of stuff. So some stuff is a lot slower for me on an iPad, but I can do almost everything now. They've really done a great job of, you know, sort of bringing feature uh, functionality in gradually over the years. So I can write on it. I can post stuff to websites. I can upload stuff. I, I haven't really tried doing much. Actually – 
I have um, not really recorded podcasts, but I've certainly phoned in via Skype to like flashcasts that we've done over on the Incomparable. So, you know, these days I feel like it's pretty capable of almost everything I want to do, just maybe not as efficient. Well, I tell you guys, as a lawyer, I use my iPad every day to get work done, and and I have the muscle memory of using a computer for many many years. But there are so many things that I find it's easier to do with a tablet and a stylus. So, for example, all of the documents from all of my cases are in, um, most of them are in an app called Goodreader, and I find it so much easier to read and to annotate documents using a stylus uh, on a tablet as opposed to a computer. Um, and there are fantastic uh, specific apps for lawyers that I like to use. Like, there's a great $90 app called Transcript Pad, which is far better than anything on my computer. I can read deposition transcripts, and I can mark a testimony by subject so that later on, like six, eight months into the case, I can tap a few buttons and everything that every witness in a case has said on a subject can just be right there in front of me. And because it's on a tablet, it's something that I could even hold in court. Um, I, in fact, having an iPad is fantastic in court, much better than a, a laptop because you can walk around with it and you don't have like, you know, the screen of the laptop covering up your face. It's almost like holding a legal pad. So, uh, you know, maybe the law is sort of a specialized industry, but I find the iPad to be an incredible productivity device. Yeah, I think those are great, great answers, and I, you know, I feel the same way. That that um, first off, I don't think it's an all or nothing question. I think you can have different devices for different. Not everybody's going to have you know three different iPads and a couple different phones and some laptops and desktops. But I think you, if you've got a couple devices or three devices, uh, it you you don't have to make it an all or nothing choice. That that said, um, you know, I don't. Uh, traditionally, I have not used the iPad for very much pro- productivity-wise, uh, and I think part of that is that I really feel comfortable with the the a hardware keyboard. Uh, not just because I like typing on a hardware keyboard, but because it frees up the screen to have nothing on it but information and not have to take half of it up with a keyboard. iPad Pro is better at that, but um, it, but still, even that, even then, I love using the iPad Pro with the keyboard. And I found it, it, over the last week that I have absolutely been able to do most of what I do. Um, it's just different. Like, like, you know, I don't have an Apple script, but there's a text editor with a JavaScript macro set built into it. And there are apps that do some of the things that I ha- I built scripts to do. Um, so it's just different. And I think for different people in different fields and with different needs, um, I don't I just don't think, uh, as we've said here, I don't think the, the question is, can you anymore? It's just, do you want to? Does it work for you? Does it fit into your life? So much more on this subject, I suspect, uh, in the weeks ahead and perhaps in the topics ahead. But let's move on to Shelley. What's your topic? Well, we learned this week of the demise of another audio streaming service. RDO is going to go away and its assets are acquired by Pandora. So something from Pandora is to come, but not for a year or so. So were you ever an RDO user? Were you ever intrigued by the social and design aspects of that particular streaming service? And is there anything that RDO offered that you would like to see make its way to Pandora? Uh, well, I can't say that I ever used RDO for a uh, huge amount of time. I think I might have played around with it uh, a few years ago. Um, but I think this does sort of uh, you know, point to sort of a, a larger issue here, which is that when we have all these streaming services, like what are the things that actually set them apart? Uh, I used Pandora for a while as well, but I think my biggest frustration with Pandora was always, I want to hear the music I want to hear, not necessarily the music that you think is what I want to hear. Um, and so, you know, and obviously it's got a different model for uh, itself than, than you know, Apple Music or Spotify or those do, which are much more sort of on-demand streaming. 
Um, but I think, you know, having used Apple Music for a while earlier this year and sort of dipping in and out of Spotify occasionally, uh, I think that there is a lot that could be done with sort of overall functionality in terms of like making those more competitive. One of my things that, that frustrates me with Apple Music, uh, aside from sort of its, its annoying design choices at times, um, is that it doesn't necessarily feel to me like a uh, a service that I can just easily like uh, dip into at times. I mean, I, I I've liked it. I like the idea of adding stuff to my library. I found that frustrating at first, but I sort of uh, got more used to it. Um, but I, I think Spotify has always felt a little more friendly to me as far as things to dip into um, and just sort of casual listening. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't necessarily, again, speak to RDO as a service since I didn't really use it that much, but, um, I think less competition is unfortunately means that we, we get not as good products in the long run. Yeah, it's always better to have diversity and choice. It's certainly helped the iPhone get better to have Android out there as a competitor. But whenever you have these industries with the small profit margins, the larger players have an edge because of economies of scale. And unless the smaller players offer something really unique, you know, inevitably they're going to probably die off or be swallowed up. Um, I, I've been happy enough with Apple Music to continue paying for it even after the three-month uh, trial ended. Um, you know, so I, I enjoy streaming music, um, but I suspect that there's going to be a couple other competitors out there. Um, Pandora, I know, is really good on the radio side and will probably stick around for that reason. So, you know, hopefully they all don't go away, but just seeing one or two of them go away, you know, I don't think is that big of a deal for all of us users that just want to have a, a good ecosystem out there. Uh, I never used RDO. Um, I might have, when it was announced, like, poked around for a few minutes, but that's about it. I, I think what I'd say, so I can't, I've, I've seen the eulogies for it saying that it was a, a good service and, and uh, it was, it, it had a very nice target audience, people who like, like albums, for example, you know, fared better on audio um, and that it was well-designed, but uh, I never really used it. And uh, what I would say is that competition's tough and this stuff, this stuff is going to happen. And it's interesting that, you know, Pandora essentially just bought the, <laughs> But the people who are who are working on RDO to have them work on Pandora, that's also kind of weird. But um, this is a tough business, and there are big players in it with Google and Apple, especially involved, and Spotify being such a powerful uh, competitor. It's uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But I think it's a super important market, and it is going to be ultimately um, you know big players that are making the plays, and RDO just kind of got cut caught under the wheels. I think. I think it says a lot that a lot of us cannot muster much detailed comment about RDO. I was never an RDO user, although it had a couple of things that I found really appealing, especially the social aspect and the album focus. And I think there are a lot of people who were very loyal to that service and are sad to see it go. I guess that's true of any service that survived as long as RDO did. And you're right to question whether the acquisition of just the the people and whatever intellectual property is behind RDO is going to change Pandora in any way, because I don't get the sense that Pandora is all about making a super beautiful design or a social network the uh, value proposition that separates them from Apple Music or from the other competitors. And I have never found a streaming service, RDO or Pandora or Apple Music, that I am completely comfortable and happy with. And so I'm still waiting for that to happen. But sadly, I don't think it's going to be a social network on top of Pandora which might come closer to what I want. What I would really like to have is a, a better version of Spotify with a little more social 
connectivity and also for social connectivity to work, of course, it has to be the, your friends that are using it. And unfortunately, my friends were never the people that were using RDO. So all the great social networking and design in the world isn't going to help if what you really want is to communicate with your friends about the music that they love and they're not at the same place that you are. Yeah. And you get the silo effect, which is difficult. Nobody wants to let anyone share with anyone else because then they'd be giving up customers. And so you end up in this kind of horrible set of choices that people have to make too. It's not fun. All right. That was a great topic. We are two topics in. We've got two more to go. That means if you do the math that we're halfway through. And I was told there'd be no math. And that means I did the math for you, Dan. And so now it's halftime. And I'd like to tell you about our halftime sponsor. This episode of Clockwise brought to you by Clean My Mac 3 from MacPaw. This is a must-have app that does a great job of cleaning your hard drive as well as optimizing and speeding up OS X. With Clean My Mac 3, you're saving the hours it would usually take to manually clean up your hard drive. All of this can be operated with one click. It's automatic. It's smart. It does the math. So you don't have to, Dan. Uh, the cleanup process is operated safely. Clean My Mac takes great care not to disrupt your system or important files. It helps speed up your Mac. It surfaces old and large files for you, letting you see if you're holding on things you no longer need. I really like that idea. I do that occasionally manually, and it's kind of a pain to say, why did I download that giant disk image two years ago? Perhaps I could delete it now. Uh, there's also a set of maintenance tools to help your system run smoothly and monitor the ongoing health of your hardware. You can find out much more about Clean My Mac 3 and get a special 30 percent off by visiting macpaw that's m-a-c-p-a-w dot com slash clockwise macpaw dot com slash clockwise thank you so much to macpaw for sponsoring the halftime show there they go the bands are off the field now and it's time for the second half dan what do you have for us all right so earlier uh, or sorry late last week uh, and it sort of rippled into this week there was an issue with the mac app store where because a certificate expired uh, a lot of folks couldn't launch many Mac App Store apps. Uh, and, you know, this got kind of roundly criticized by a lot of people, especially Mac developers on Twitter, because it seemed like a really short-sighted bug. Um, and so, in general, it's sort of put into stark relief that Mac apps, and particularly the Mac App Store, has always been kind of a second-class citizen compared to, say, the iOS App Store. Um, and so I'm curious to know what kind of improvements you would like to see that would sort of elevate the Mac App Store or, you know, alternatively, should it be abolished altogether? Jeff, what do you think? I might be more of a fatalist here. I can understand why Apple pays so little attention to the Mac App Store because so few people use it. I I'm certainly guilty of that myself. Um, I, I get new iOS apps gosh, almost every day. But it has been years since I bought anything new in the Mac App Store, if you don't count the system software updates that come about once a year. Um, and on the rare occasions when I do buy Mac software, I find that it's usually a better deal to buy directly from the publisher. You know, so I remember when I bought 1Password a while back, uh, you know, on their website, I could get a bundle for both the Mac at home that I use and my PC at work, which, you know, the Mac App Store is never going to be able to offer something like that. So, um, you know, that certificate bug was scary and it's a shame because somebody wasn't you know, paying attention to things at Apple. And, uh, and I, I can't even imagine if my parents had seen that uh, cryptic error message, what they would have saw. Somebody was hacking in their computer or something. They probably would have thought. But Apple is, is just going to pay more attention to the products that more people use. And I don't see that changing anytime soon for the Mac App Store. I'm glad that it's there, but it's going to be a second-tier citizen. 
Yeah, you know, I do think that it's it's true that the iPhone and iOS being so big means the Mac is not is never going to be the primary thing. But if we if we're going to talk about how many billions of dollars of business that the Mac is, then it should be run like a business that brings in that much money. It doesn't really matter that there's another bring, business that brings in more. I mean, I realize that perhaps organizationally it does matter, but it shouldn't matter. I feel like this the Mac business is an important business to Apple. It is a sizable business, and it should be taken seriously. And and they seem to be taking it seriously on the hardware side, but and and again, stop me if you've heard this before. On the services side, Apple seems to be lagging behind. I don't know whether it's because this is in Eddie Q's group and they have bigger fish to fry, and culturally, it's not uh, part of what they care about, or, or you know, I don't know what the story is about it. But it's very clear that the Mac App Store is just kind of um, not interesting. It, we thought it would be big, and it's turned out to not be that big. Um, there are so many problems with the way that they've uh, set up the curation of it, and it's their call to do that, but it makes the Mac App Store a lot less popular. And then you see something like this, and it, and it's, it really is just revealing, I think, how uh, little Apple seems to care for the Mac App Store. So, you know, what could Apple do to improve the situation? If that, if that was the question, Dan, I mean, my answer is they could actually pay more attention to the Mac App Store and try to get, try to, try to get people to use it by uh, figuring out ways to make it better. And I think this has revealed that they aren't really paying attention to it. Fortunately, as a Mac user, you cannot use the Mac App Store. And and I think the reality is, is that that's the conclusion that most users and software companies have come to, is just don't use it, and then that solves your problem. Uh, yeah, it's sad, but I think that's where we are. One and only one app that I use regularly was affected by the certificate bug. It was Amadeus Pro, which I had purchased at the Mac App Store. And uh, I guess it's notable that a lot of what I bought just was not affected in any way. And I think there are two cases in which a user might benefit from the Mac App Store. One is if uh, to get automatic upgrades, and the other is in the case that you are setting up a new Mac, and it's probably the most straightforward way to move software over to your new Mac under your existing Apple ID. That having been said, I've never been a fan of the Mac App Store. And to be really honest, I haven't talked to a lot of other people about it, so I thought I was sort of alone on an island in, in this regard, and I'm glad to hear that I'm not. I was not thrilled when I heard that it was happening because I felt like it was a way to take money out of the developers' pockets and wasn't really going to give users a great experience. And that that seems to have come true. The curation is a really big issue. Finding what you want uh, to to outfit your new Mac with the best and, and most appropriate software for what you do has never been something the Mac App Store has excelled at. And I, you know, improving it would be nice. I would just as soon not have to deal with it. I would prefer some sort of system that would help people who are less sophisticated uh, manage moving software to new Macs and keeping updates managed. But but those are the most valuable things that it offers to a user and to somebody like myself or any of you who is really sophisticated about how they manage their resources. It's not really something that's that's necessary. And it's really unfortunate when we even have to have this conversation because of a mistake that, as as Jeff points out, could scare a lot of users that are concerned about security and aren't really sure how to proceed, who, who probably didn't read the articles that tell you that what you need to do to fix it is to restart your Mac and move on with your life, because that's after Apple has made the fix that they need to make on their end. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're all kind of hitting the nail on the head here. And, and unlike on, on iOS, where obviously there wasn't really an alternative, unless you count the sweet solution that was web apps, 
Um, you know, Mac users are really used to going out and getting software for the most part. Maybe less so for those who have switched to the Mac more recently. But even for them, you know, they're used to finding going and finding programs on the web uh, on whatever computer platform they were probably using before. Um, and so I feel like uh, between that and the fact that, I, that a lot of the really great Mac apps are things that still don't necessarily work in the store because of the things that they do. Um, I, you know, I feel that it is, as Jeff said, often better to go to the provider or the developer and, and buy your apps through them. Um, so there are some benefits. The automatic updates are great. I do like that a lot. And as Shelly said, moving from one Mac to another is fantastic um, when all your apps are in there. But very rarely are all of my apps in there. Many of them are, but some of them, you know, I still have to go and download and enter license codes and all that. Uh, and a lot of them do updates their own way, too, like because, you know, before that we had uh, the Sparkle framework, which a lot of apps I use still have where they like run their own updates when you launch them. Um, and that was perfectly fine. I didn't really feel like the Mac App Store necessarily added a ton of benefit for me as an end user. But really, it does seem like, I think to Jason's point about the Mac being a big business, it seems like it could be run a lot better. There are a lot of features the iOS App Store has, um, including things like uh, support for test flight that is not available at all on the Mac side. Um, and so it is true that Mac developers, I think, often get short shrift compared to their iOS counterparts. Uh, and I would like to see a little more attention devoted to this because, you know, as as Jason said, this is a big business for them and it's getting bigger. Like they're selling record number of Macs frequently. So, you know, maybe lavish a little attention on the software to go along with the hardware. Okay, well, as Jason said at the top of the hour, we now have the brand new iPad Pro. And I would love to talk about the Apple Pencil, but since mine is backordered until, I think, 2017, like most people, uh, let's talk about the most obvious new feature of the iPad Pro, which is its size. Do you think that the larger screen makes this a better iPad for most folks, or is the big size appropriate for only a tiny audience? For most folks is the is the phrase I'm going to key on there because I don't think it is. I think this is I think this is a a niche product, right? That I think Apple is feeling the freedom now to expand their product lines. So you've got the iPad Air, which I think is the mainstream iPad, and the Mini, which has mostly all the features of the iPad Air, uh, that but smaller. And then there's this big honkin' iPad Pro, which is more expensive and has the huge screen and has more power, and. You know, that screen can, and, and the size of it in general, it's, it's a little unwieldy. There are places, like in the context of like uh, waking up in the morning and checking uh, email or reading a, a book or some web pages before I go to bed, uh, it feels kind of ridiculously large. That's just, it's, it's, I'm not sure it works for me in that context. In other contexts, working, um, getting work done uh, at a, at a tabletop or a bar top or something like that, or even maybe in my lap uh, when I'm sitting up in a chair or on, on the couch or something like that. It works better. But I, I think it's not, you know, it's definitely not for everyone. It's it's not a no-brainer like, oh, well, if you can afford it, you could get the big one because it's it's the best one. It's like, well, no, the bigger it gets, the the um, the stranger, the the I think the math of, of how you want it, how you want to use it. So uh, I think I think it's got some particular users who are going to love it. Anybody who wants to use that pencil, anybody who really wants the big screen. And I, I, I make this point uh, a lot because I think people forget um, it's a uh, it's also a large print edition iPad in the sense that you can like you can on the iPhone six. Uh, and six plus, you can scale the screen up. You can basically put it in large mode, and it makes it takes all the pixels of an iPad Air and and scales them up to fill on that screen. So if you're somebody who has difficulty seeing, 
it might actually be an interesting option there because it's got the scale mode. So I think those are interesting things about it, but I don't think it's for everyone. I would agree. And I think rather than saying that the iPad Pro is good for a tiny audience, I would say it's good for several different tiny audiences, Mm. whether they be illustrators or people who are photographers or audio people, perhaps. I think we perhaps don't even know all of the markets into which the iPad Pro will be a great fit. There are probably some enterprise categories where the iPad Pro might not even be a personal device, but might be a front end for some other computing platform. It might be something within an office that has a kiosk type function. There are all sorts of great ways to use the iPad Pro, but I wouldn't to an average person who came to me and said, I have approximately $1,000 in my pocket and I would like to buy an Apple product with which I can be productive, I would probably say, you should probably look at that iPad Air. I, I, I'm sorry, I have the, <laughs> the MacBook. Ah, you should probably look at the MacBook Air, or maybe even the MacBook Pro, because given the choice between the two, I think the computer for most people is still going to be a better value and give you more flexibility um, I think you're right about um, accessibility in terms of low vision. I've thought about that myself. It's not in the cards for me. And for, for some people with low vision, uh, it's an issue of being able to hold that thing up and having to have right. it really near your face if that's the way your vision works. But for a lot of other people, and I also think in, in some academic environments, it might be a really great accessibility tool. Yeah, I think the the main sort of advantage of having the iPad Pro is that like other lines like the MacBook line, you know, now have a bunch of different screen sizes. So you can choose whichever screen size is best suited for whatever you want to do with that device. Uh, And so I think that it's totally right that the the iPad Pro seems like it's a really great solution, for example, artists, because it's a nice big canvas that they can draw on and the pencil support, obviously. Um, If you need it for accessibility reasons or you like reading, you know, comic books at giant full size, then great. That's that's perfect. Um, But I know a lot of people who similarly like the iPad mini because it's so small and it's pocketable. It fits in a purse or a small bag or something like that. And you can still get everything done that you can on a larger iPad. Uh, and then the Air is a nice mid-ground. It's one of the reasons I moved to that this year. It doesn't seem so big anymore after the iPad Pro. Uh, and I feel like it's still a pretty capable device. It does really well with split screen. Uh, it's really powerful. Uh, and it's not unwieldy or super heavy. Um, so I think what Apple's done is really establish a great range of products. And even if the Pro is sort of a niche product, well, maybe the Mini's a niche product too. And it's the iPad Air that's sort of the big seller. Or maybe yep. it's just that we've just got products to appeal to everyone. Now, so there's an iPad for everybody, uh, and so overall, I think the way I feel about it is just you know it's it's there's so much variation now that it means that nobody has to say, well, I wish there was a bigger iPad or I wish there was a smaller iPad. Yeah, I think those are all good points. You know, I mentioned before that as a lawyer, I I often look at documents on my iPad and I love that my iPad holds every document that's important to all my cases. Reading documents on an iPad Pro makes the documents essentially full size, which is amazing. And there are so many other things that the big screen is great for. Watching movies is fantastic. But then at other times, it just seems, seems too big and a little too heavy. But I can't forget that, you know, I was very happy with the size of my iPhone 4 before we had the taller iPhone 5. And now my iPhone 5 seems small compared to the iPhone 6. And so, you know, with more use, maybe the iPad already after a week of the iPad Pro, when I pick up my iPad Air, it feels tiny. I'm like, oh, look how cute 
sweet this little thing is. So, you know, maybe I'll get used to it over time, or maybe it's going to be, you know, I find the iPhone 6 um, Plus to be just too big. When, when I see people holding those things up to their face, it, it looks like uh, Maxwell Smart talking on a shoe phone. It's just crazy big. So, you know, I, I like that there's variety and, and folks have to decide what's best for them, but it's tough to decide for the iPad Pro because bigger is better for documents in a lot of ways, um, but then sometimes it just feels too big. It's a tough one. I'm still thinking about it myself. Well, a lot more. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how people talking about Shelley's uh, small small niches of users. I think that that's going to tell the story of with the iPad Pro. We're going to find out some pretty fantastic uses for it, and that's the, the place where it's going to be used the most. Uh, four topics down. We just have time for our bonus topic, and uh, since I am the uh, initial host, I get to ask the bonus topic. It's this. Uh, I want to ask about binge-worthy TV. Master of None just came out with NZ Sansari on Netflix. Jessica Jones on Netflix and Man in the High Castle on Amazon are both on the way later this week. What's your take on binge-washing personally? Do you do it? And if so, what's your upper limit for how long you can binge? Shelley? I watch so little TV that any watching that I do feels like a binge. When I, <laughs> when I do it, I can probably get through maybe three or four half-hour shows or maybe two one-hour shows. Beyond that, my attention span wanders and I'm looking for an iPad to play on. Mm, wow, I can I can binge watch basically for I need to forcibly stop myself from doing it. Just the last two days, I've been binge watching the first season of iZombie, which is really fantastic. And I watched all of Master of None in like 24 hours last week. But that's also because I had a foot injury. And so I was laid up. So uh, I always feel a little bit at the end like I just ate a bunch of junk food. <laughs> so there is there is like a coming down from that high. But man, when I'm in it, I can just I can watch like like a full 13 episode series in like two days. Wow. <laughs> I tell you, binge watching is my favorite way to watch shows. I love doing it on Netflix and Amazon. And in years past, I would do doing DVDs. Uh, it reminds me when I was uh, younger, you know, I would a really good book. You would always want to read that next chapter and that next chapter. And the next thing you know, you've stayed up all night finishing the book. Um, it's it's great that with the streaming services like Netflix, we can do that nowadays. And for me, I, I'm, I'm actually more on the Shelly side. I, I can't do a long binge of the same thing. Um, if, you know, I've got so much going on with the kids and all that, it's kind of hard to find the, a, a long stretch of TV watching time anyway. But, but when I get it, I get that feeling of like, well, yeah, I could watch five episodes of Arrow or I could watch two and then switch to some other show and watch a couple more of that. And so I end up sort of programming a, a little three hour lineup of something when I do it rather than just going, going straight through. So yeah, when we watch three episodes of anything in a row, we feel like we are crazy bingers and that. That's uh, that's sad, really, more than anything else. Well, thank you for your uh, thank you for your answers, and we've reached the end of the show, Dan. Uh, we made it. I highly recommend, incidentally, binge listening to all 113 episodes <laughs> of Clockwise. <laughs> I'd like to thank our guests before we go, Shelley Brisbane. Thank you so much. iOSaccessbook.com is where they can get the book. Yes, thanks for having me. I now have to go binge listen to an awful lot of podcasts. So many podcasts. Jeff Richardson from iPhoneJD.com. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Jason. Always fun. And uh, that's it. So thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of Clockwise. And until next time, we remind you, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.